Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So we're taking a break from First Samuel, and uh, usually in the spring, I like to do some spring cleaning sermons on uh, family issues. Uh, we didn't last year because there were there were other issues to deal with. So uh, today we're going to be talking about marriage. Next week, um, we're gonna, I'm going to do what is traditionally called an artillery sermon on the 4th of July. 4th of July on, on a Sunday is a special treat. So I'll explain that next week. But I'm going to do a few sermons on marriage, on family matters, and then uh, in the late July and August, I'll do a whole series on uh, what it means to be a good church member. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to be talking about verses pretty much in every book of it. <laughs> so I'll try to give the address before I go, but uh, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. If you want to turn that with you. We're going to talk about marriage. you got to start at the beginning. Before we open the word of the Lord, let us together pray and teach his word. Father, we thank you so much uh, for our wives, for our husbands, for the institution of marriage, the joy and the goodness of it. And as we um, open your word and we are instructed in what it means to be married, what marriage is, for, where it's going. Uh, I, I know, Lord, that we are declaring war on the culture around the world. This is exactly what we take in marriage. Uh, it is a desperate hour in which we live, in which marriage is under attack on every side. And I pray, Lord, God, that as we open this word, that you would deal with our flesh, that you would deal with our hearts and minds, that we would grow to understand marriage better, to appreciate it more. Well, I'm going to make a number of assertions here at the start. Uh, this idea for the sermon has been around a while, so some of you may have heard some of the ideas in this before. Uh, but as, as Paul said, it's, it's okay that I repeat myself. It's good for you, and it's no problem for me. Cutting and pasting is a lot easier sometimes, if it's your own sermon. But what is marriage? What is it? If I say things like marriage is eschatology, or marriage is the purpose of creation, what does that mean? Uh, for any uh, Bible-believing Christian, when you think of biblical marriage, you often think that that is the story of redemptive history. That is the point that man and woman were put on this earth. It is the eschaton, where the story of humanity and God and his relationship to humanity is headed. Uh, if I say other things, slightly more controversial, like on her wedding day, the bride is as ugly as she's going to be, what do I mean by that? Uh, I, that's an idea I heard from Doug Wilson, a not bold enough preacher, on, on a wedding day to stand there at the altar and tell the bridegroom that this is as ugly as she's going to get. But it's true. <laughs> Regardless of the hair, regardless of the flowers, regardless of the makeup, regardless of the thirty, you know, ten thousand dollar dress, that that's it's just the beginning. There's nowhere to go from there but up. What could I possibly mean by such a bold statement? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter one, and let's we're going to look through the Bible. We're going to look at some very important verses about marriage, and what we're going to try to do is is figure out all of these assertions that I've made. How is it that marriage is so crucial to our understanding of not only uh, the biblical story, but just what it means to be uh, a human being? Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, God said, 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so far, so good. Everyone is quite familiar with that verse. Then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created a rational, emotional, spiritual, physical being who would rule like him and love like him and commune like him. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 tells us a, a little bit, a little commentary on what's happened here. 1 Corinthians 11, 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Man, in creation, who was first there in Eden, is the glory of God. Now, in Romans, this is what Paul, this is what Paul means when he says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of the image that was pressed upon us in creation. This is the glory we've fallen short of, the glory of God. Because that's what our, the image of God in us is supposed to be, His glory. <laughs> I like saying it. You know, the most beautiful thing that exists is God. And so why would, right, if He's the masterpiece, why wouldn't He make copy after copy after copy of Himself? Uh, it, it's just logical. And that's what He's done with human beings. He's put His glory on man. Now, image bears in, image bears as the glory of God. Image glory. This is how you just set these two things aside in your mind because we're going to come back to them. We're going to now start taking little things and putting them in a pile and in the end we'll look at what we have. Image and glory are synonymous. The second is that isolation is not the divine norm for human beings. A community is the fullest image of God. God made him, it says. God created them, it says. This is fundamental. Solitary man does not an image of God make. Okay, sorry, monks. Right? You're, you're, you're further from God. When you live in isolation, you are further and further and further from the image of God. Man needs man. Now, God, uh, community is the fullest image of God. Now, that's true, but there is a particular community that is the fullest image of God. Making man in the triune God's image necessitated a community. And the primary version of that is a man and his wife. That is the primary community that images the triune God. God is, um, so the Trinitarian God created man and woman in a unified, diverse kingdom. If, if you have God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, that what you have is a unified diversity. And if you look at a man and woman, what do you have? A unified diversity. You have less of it if you have two men. You have less of it if you have two women. You need a complete unified diversity, and it's found in a man and a woman. Uh, <laughs> talk, to, talk to a man and a woman, and you can, you'll hear what I am talking about. Look at them, and you can see what I mean. Other fellowships also image God. I don't want to, there's a number of times here where I'm going to go so hard at this. Some of you who are not married may be wondering, well, what about me? Um, and, and I want to just point out that not everyone is called to the institution of marriage. It's true. But it is normative. And given its role in the story of the Bible, it's important that all of us are on the same page about it. But, you know, so a, a person living in community is an image bearer. A man and wife are a truer, fuller picture of the triangle. The cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, is a command to take dominion. This is what man is told to do. God takes Adam and he says, listen, go and take dominion of this earth. Fill it. Be fruitful. 
Well, how is a man going to do that without a wife? Without a wife, it's impossible. This is why a man and a woman, this is this was the point in the beginning. In order to do the thing that God wanted man to do, he needs a wife. Now the Lord made man and woman, but as the narrative progresses into chapter two, there's a strange thing that happens. He first makes man, and then there is a delay, and then he makes woman. Now why does God do this? Why does he do this? What's his purpose? Especially given that God looks at solitary Adam and doesn't like it. And so why would God do something that is He doesn't like it man and woman. And his intent was to make both of them. But why would he take his time? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So my question is, well, why didn't he just make both of them at the start? God is a mysterious God. He's a very mysterious God. He does these little things all the time. Why would he make an unfinished man? He made him incomplete. Because he wanted Adam to discover for himself that it wasn't good that he was alone. He's teaching Adam, right? This is a, we're all raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He's raising us in the Padea of himself. He is instructing us. He's always working on us so that we grow up in maturity. And so what he wants is for Adam to walk around for a time and to realize himself he can't do it alone. Humility is the point. Maturity is a process, and that process begins with humility. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, this is what we read. The Lord God brought every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens to the man to see what he would call them. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. There is not a helper fit for him. That's the phrase God used. Now Adam has come to, to determine it himself. He sees. You know what? There is not a helper here fit for me. Like, I get that the horse can carry stuff. Camel looks like I could ride him pretty far. He doesn't seem like he needs much water. These are a lot of nice helpers. But there's not a helper fit for me to accomplish the thing, God, that you have told me to do. This is crucial. It's crucial that the man realizes himself it's not good that he's alone. Men take men. Right? Because men don't like that for help. We don't like that for directions. We don't like that, like, I, I don't know how many shirts I've ruined. Or I don't need help from my wife giving me a little tag off, and so I end up ripping holes in it. <laughs> I don't need help from your book. I got this pocket knife. That's just one example. I'm sorry, Anne. I'll try to keep you personal. But men don't want to admit that they need help. And here is Adam in the garden before the fall, doing the thing that men are supposed to do. I, I am unfinished. I, I am insufficient for me to be here all by myself. As he began to function as God's representative, naming the animals that God wanted him, exercising his authority and ownership over creation, Adam becomes aware of incompleteness. It is not good that he's alone, for he has no help or fit. How is he going to be fruitful? How is he going to take dominion? How is he going to rule? Every single man should recognize that he is incomplete. Now let's look at some other verses real fast just to see if this is in fact true. Proverbs 12.4 An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 1.20, wisdom cries aloud in the street, and the markets she raises her voice. Why is wisdom a woman? All through Proverbs, why is wisdom a woman of all things? First Corinthians 11.7, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, that, but woman is the glory of man. So here is Adam, who is supposed to be a king. 
Where's his crown? Where's his glory? Where's his wisdom? How is he going to accomplish any of the things God's given him to do without a woman? He sees, what, there's two horses, there's two dogs, there's two birds, there's two of everything. Well, where's my crown? Where's my glory? Where's my wisdom? Where is my helper? Now, this is one of those many <laughs> words that when you say things like this, you, you know, I don't know if the lady physically cringe, but I know mentally and spiritually they cringe. We have, right, I'm sure that he would like to have been created for something greater than, than just be the helper. <laughs> because when we hear helper, that's what we think of. We think of like, oh, hey, can you get my slippers? And can you make sure my pipe is clean? Can you make sure dinner's on time? Uh, and and uh, I said I wasn't going to say it, but it's true. I used to call my wife when we were first married and tell her what I wanted to do. Right? Because she's just the help. And, and you can imagine how long that lasted. <laughs> Especially once Dean, the former pastor. <laughs> no, wait, wait, what did you say? What did you do? <laughs> a woman doesn't want to be the help. And when, and when men hear this, this is what we want to make them, the help. But they're not the help. They're a helper. That's a really different word. Now let's think about this for a second. Who is consistently referred to as the helper of man throughout Scripture? God is. Deuteronomy 33, 7. And this he said to Judah, Hear, O God, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people with your hands, contend for him, and be a help against his adversary. Man is looking for, to God to help him. Why? Because he can't accomplish the thing he's been given to do by himself. Psalm 20, verse 2. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And so if God is our helper, and a woman is created be the helper of man, who is she like in this role? Right? There's no dishonor in being referred to by the same title as God, is there? Right? Am I, am I some, is it bad to be called the father because God is father? Now, right? This requires us understanding that the helper is not the help. Can't be, can't be more clear about that. In John 14, 26, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. I'm going to send you a helper. And nobody says, oh, Jesus, can you have a little more dignity and respect for the Holy Spirit by not, by not calling him the helper? My goodness. But when right with this lady, you hear it, and you're kind of like, oh. But this is how God refers to himself, because ladies, you and God, you and God should be able to agree at least on this. Men are helpers. <laughs> Never disappoint. Now, since God is said to exercise the role of helper, the term does not diminish the person who holds the title. If anything, it elevates them. It gives them a place alongside God. It makes them godlike. Now, ladies, when you hear that a lady was made to serve her husband and it rankles you, know that it's the lies of the world and your flesh that is rankled. For we have we love talking about service. We love it if it's Jesus. We love Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He gives his life as a ransom for many. And the world looks at Christian marriage and, and Christian teaching on women and says, Listen, you, you don't want to just be a servant, do you? Have some have more self respect than that. Have more self respect than Jesus. Is what the devil is. Because Jesus Said, I didn't come to be served, actually. I just want everyone to know. I came to do the service. 
And then you say, okay, ladies, serve your husbands. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's with this? I have more self-respect than that. I am glad to hear you have more self-respect than Jesus. That's actually the problem. And, and so we have to learn how to talk about these things and not fear what the world tells us. I'm not kidding. This is a declaration of war. This, like, the only time that I've had, ever had trouble with a sermon of mine with this book is when I talk about issues involving women. Somehow that's the thing that is flat. So I, here I am again, declaring war on the culture. Ladies, you were created to be the helper of man, to serve man. And Jesus came, right, in the image and likeness of man, to show you how to do it. Adam was created in such a way that he came to understand his need of a helper. Husband and wife are a complete picture of mutual support, fulfillment, service, selflessness, and the one-anothering at the heart of the gospel ethic. In the New Testament, one-anothering is the ethic that, that the apostles are constantly trying to get us to understand. Greet one another, prefer one another, love one another, uphold one another, forgive one another. The 33 one-another command, that's what we're supposed to do. And where you see a better picture of that than in the home between a husband and wife. Now, God says, well done, son. You saw the problem. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, what I want to do is cure the problem. It says in Genesis, chapter 2, starting at verse 21. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, took one of his ribs, and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Now at last Adam has found a partner fit for him. For the woman shares his nature, and what he lacks, she, she supplies. The point of Adam's jubilant cry is that the creation of humankind has reached its goal in the coming together of man and woman. Adam see, oh, now we're complete. Now there's a set. Adam's first recorded words are words that he expresses to his wife. They're also a call. This is, again, men take notes. <laughs> this is how you ought to respond when you see your wife. The other thing, though, is that it's a naming ceremony. Just like he brought all the animals to Adam to see what he would call them, he brought woman to Adam to see what he would call her. Now, she's known as Eve by many of us, but that actually doesn't happen until Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. She's called Eve, the mother of the living. Well, that's not her name. Her name, in Genesis back in the beginning, this is a naming ceremony. Adam looks her up and down, and Adam says, this is Isha. Isha is the name. And, and it means woman, but it, the, the root of this word is actually the word for fire. So, if you really want a good interpretation of what he says here, he says, and some of you heard me say this before, but I never typed it, Adam looks at Eve and says, this is hot and this is mine. This is fire and this is mine, baby. Whew! Man! Ow! Look at this. Look what God made me. <laughs> There's all the animals like, whew! Adam was in the garden. We can hear him from here. Marriage. This is another marriage sermon I don't have the courage to do. At the 
heart of marriage is a sanctified sexual relationship. Everyone understands. What we are all here witnessing is that these two are now exclusive to one another. And, and, and part of the job of witnesses is to guard and protect what we have together as a community come to create. Right? That, this, these two are now exclusive to one another. There's ownership here. There, there is joy in the, in the midst of this. And, and that is what everyone is there to witness on, on wedding day. The modern culture says you can sleep with anyone or anything that you want at any time without ever ha having it affect your life in any way. But Christian marriage is a celebration of sexual exclusivity and all the glorious responsibility and mutual care and fruitfulness that it necessitates. A wedding is a gathering in a garden before God to unite Egypt to Adam, completing the image of God. No man can fulfill his calling without help, and wives are that help. Woman was made to fill up what the man lacked. Husband, your wife, was made to complete you, and by joining with you in marriage, she, she becomes fully herself. The miracle of marriage is that of all the women in all of human history, from every age, from every land, husband, one woman was made to be the flesh of your flesh and the bone of your bone. Wives are the answer to a profound problem, that it was not good that man was alone. God has made me to finish Adam, and let that be every wife's calling. Let that be her glory, even as she is his glory. A husband is not a whole man without his wife. Now, this is the Bible's vision for marriage. This is the source of our marital gratitude, our humility, the framework in which we attempt to understand how to be married. But we must understand that marriage is not the reward for responsible men. Okay? Free marriage counseling is always about this. This is not a reward for something you've accomplished in the first 20 years of your life. And you're not that great. You're really not. <laughs> you have not done something fantastic and now we're rewarding you with a prize. Okay? You you are you need a lot of work. And so what God has provided is earth. <laughs> and this is just the start. This is the beginning. It's not the um, it's not the gift or reward for responsible men. It is the means of making responsible men. Without your wife, you are incomplete, and your response to her should be poetic praise and delight and joy and thanksgiving. But this completeness is not like icing on the cake. It's not like God made a beautiful cake and he's like, you know what this needs is just some frosting. And maybe some strawberries. That's not what, that's not the finishing work that God is doing. It's not about having a cook or a house cleaner or extra income or something pretty clinging to your arm as you go around impressing the rest of us. It's about exclusivity in the bedroom, but then it's not even about just that. Marital intimacy is cultivated in every room of the house and comes to fruition in the bedroom. Okay, but really important that men understand this. Sex starts in the kitchen, I think, is one famous marriage book, and it's true. Okay? Intimacy is cultivated in every room of the house, and the fruit of it is in the marriage bedroom. If the only physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy a married couple has is in the bedroom, it will be a good marriage. Now, wives complete their husbands because wives bring, wives bring into a man's life all the glorious qualities that make him a higher being than the animal. Wisdom and glory and a crown that makes a king. Wives soften their husbands into creatures that are images of Christ, softens their hard hearts and their rough manners and their hard-headedness. Um, hard but how does that happen? 
How does a woman who's the weaker vessel, who's, this, who's serving, who's the helper, how does she come into a man's life and, and, and soften him if she herself is soft? If she herself is weak? If she herself is malleable? How does she end up changing him? And that's actually what we're going to be talking about in the rest of this verse. Marriage is a long obedience in the same direction, and God uses it to shape men and women into little Christs in very different ways, but it's what he's doing. He's making little Christs out of husbands and wives. Now, first off, the first thing is, is the wisdom that a wife serves her husband. That she's there. She's helping him gain wisdom. Now, the book of Proverbs is written by a king, addressed to a friend, instructing him in what it means to be a king. That's what the entire book is about. Do you want to be a good king? Here's how. 31 chapters. Now, throughout the book, there are two women to be pursued. One is Lady Wisdom, and one is Lady Folly. Now, if, if Lady Wisdom is pursued diligently, Proverbs ends with what? The description of an excellent wife. Now, if you pursue Lady Wisdom, what you get in the end is an excellent wife. So here is Solomon instructing his children in what it means to be a king, and, and what is he instructing them? How to find an excellent wife. And how do you find one? Well, by pursuing wisdom. In pursuing and wooing wisdom, a man learns to pursue and woo an excellent wife. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5 through 6, it says, this is how it describes pursuing wisdom, and it, this sounds like good advice for young men pursuing a woman. It says, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. So as a man gains wisdom, he gains in what, right? If you go through Proverbs, what is a man who becomes wise, what does he gain? He gains thrift and diligence and responsibility. He a work ethic courtesy, all the things needed to provide and protect for a life. Now, knowing when to rebuke and when not to, men, knowing when to keep your mouth shut and when to open it, these are the things a man must learn if he's going to keep and protect a wife. Knowing about accurate ways to measure, how to conduct oneself at the dinner table, all of these things have to do with pursuing and wooing a woman. I, I remember how hard it was to eat in front of my dear wife when we were first dating. Because eating, watching me eat is like going to the zoo. <laughs> and I thought, I'm never going to win this woman if I eat normally. So I started to get like stupid challenges. I wish YouTube videos existed at the time because I would have watched about table match. Or Jane Austen movies or something. But it's like, okay, cut very, very small, cut very small. Napkin, don't even really need it right now, but I can demonstrate that I know how to use it. And this is a small, funny way, but I, 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 I try to think of all the ways that this has happened. Where I think of my wife, and I think, man, I can't keep doing things the way I'm doing it. I gotta, I gotta learn wisdom here. And so you go and you pursue wisdom, and then what ends up happening is, is you're pursuing your wife the whole time. Now, furthermore, when a man pursues lady wisdom, he's rejecting lady folly and her sexual sin. The adulterous, seductive woman, and, and the fruit of her illicit patronage is always death. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to your ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to her chambers of death. 
As a man pursues living with him, he, he gains sexual fidelity, and he learns what it means to be a one-woman man. Right? If you, if you pursue lady folly, what is going to end up happening in your home with your wife? You're going to lose her. Now, if you, gain, if you pursue lady wisdom, and you reject lady folly, what's going to happen? You're going to learn how to keep one woman, and love one woman, and be um, faithful to one woman. Treating wisdom as a woman prepares men to treat and keep a woman well. This is what Peter means in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Don't just live with them. Live with them wisely. Because you're a fool, and if you keep acting like a fool, you will lose them. By wooing wisdom, a man will lose a wife and learns how to build a home. Proverbs 24, 3. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. Now, Women want a man that they can respect. And that necessarily requires a man to pursue lady wisdom. It's the only way to attain a good wife. Now, there's something else a wife serves up. Fruit salad, I like to say. The fruit of the spirit. Wives don't just serve up wisdom. And by pursuing wisdom, you pursue her. They also serve up the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit are the attributes of God produced in us by God. It, it, it's proof positive that God in the end is remaking us like himself because all of the fruit of the spirit are attributes that God has and he's, he's doing what? he's training us by pursuing the life by pursuing uh, walking by the spirit by living uprightly by turning from self to Christ by putting away the old man and putting on the new man all of these things producing the fruit of the spirit in us now attributes are the things that make people what they are this magnificent beard is part of it's my attribute, it's what makes me who I am, partially, on the outside. And God has attributes that he shares with mankind, and some that he doesn't. He's omniscient, and he's omnipotent. He does not share those with man. But, if man learns how to love, if man learns self-control, if man learns how to be gentle, he learns those things, he acquires those things, through his unity with Christ. John chapter 15, verse 5, it says, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things that if you're united to Christ, that's the fruit growing on the tree. It says in Ephesians 3.17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, if you're rooted and grounded in love, what are you going to produce in the end? So Jesus is very clear about this, right? The root determines the fruit. Now, what does this have to do with marriage? Right? I thought this was just like generic Christian teaching. Right? You just live as a Christian, and you, this is what's happening to you. But let's go back to this idea of image and glory. Imagine... Uh, yeah. So now remember that image and glory are synonymous with one another. We covered this at the beginning. God uses us for his attributes through the fruit of the Spirit, remaking us into his image, his glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled faith, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The fall is being reversed. The image of God is being restored in man. We are being glorified. Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the bride of Christ is the church. 
and our Lord husband is shaking us by his glory into his glory and treasured possession. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, when we talk about being transformed into the glory and into God, he's talking about the fact that he is the Lord husband of the church. He's talking about marriage. He's explaining to you how marriage works. If, if the husband takes a wife and what he does is sanctifies and glorifies and beautifies and cleanses and makes something out of her that she wasn't before. And as he does this, he himself is remade into something different. All of this teaching in the New Testament on this, these ethics, they're talking about the ethics of marriage. This is why we read in Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 32, this. Look at how all these things connect. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ loves the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage explains redemptive history. What is happening? The Lord God is taking the woman on, right? Take the church in on their wedding day and sanctifies and cleanses and beautifies and turns her into a crown of glory that he presents to the Father in the end. The entire series of events in redemptive history are, are understood as a, as a wedding, as a marriage, a good one. Therefore, men look, take note, observe, and imitate. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take, take what the Lord gives you, beautify it, and offer it back to him. A glorious crown of beauty for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The, the, the apostles understood that this was the eschatological uh, import of marriage. They understood where the story was headed. They understood what they were participating in. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin of Christ. This is how Peter understood his responsibility as an elder. He, I, you're not just feeding sheep, right? You're, you're participating in this process in which the Lord is beautifying his wife. This is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. The glory of what? The glory of a finished crown. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Man is the glory and image of God. A wife is the glory of her husband. A wife is a crown. The bride of Christ is his glory. The bride of Christ is his crown. And that is what we're all here doing. We are being sanctified. We're being cleansed. We're being purified. We're being beautified. And, and this is what, in Ephesians, Paul saying, do this in your home. Is your, is your wife getting more lovely or less lovely? Are you becoming more of a bore or less of a bore? If 
This is what we're talking about. This is how all of this works itself out in our actual homes. And we don't want this, right? What's the standard of beauty? We'll go online, we'll look at the red carpet, and we'll, we'll learn what the standard of beauty is. We'll, and we'll buy some magazines from Fred Meyer, and we'll look at what the standard of beauty is. We will turn on the television, and we'll turn on Netflix, and we'll see the standard, and women are always told what? Beautify yourself, beautify yourself. What God wants to accomplish through marriage, the world thinks it can accomplish through lotion. Right? Hair color. What does the world say is beautiful? Come on. A face is malleable. You know what I like to see? You know what I've learned to love being a Christian? It is the face of a woman in her 60s, where she's got those lines that demonstrate she's laughing a great deal. Because I see it, I'm like, man, that woman is love right there. And I delight more in that than all the 20-year-olds with tight bodies that you can find. And, and because that's the standard. We have a standard where marriage shapes and molds women, not the world. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm growing weary of our not understanding that. I, I've told this story before, and I don't mind it. Right? Who ought to think my wife is the most beautiful woman? Me. <laughs> right? And part of how I accomplish this is that I take her to the store and I say, hey, go pick out whatever you want. And then she tries it on, and if I don't like it, she doesn't get it. You know why? Because now, what's the fruit of this? Every time I look at her, no matter what she's wearing, she looks smoking hot. Why? Because is she here to please anyone other than me? No. Right? And it's not just that. What ought the house look like? What ought the food taste like? What ought the kids be like? When I come home and I'm like, right? We, we find this easier to understand in other ways. If I were to give my children to my wife and say, listen, play as much Xbox as you can to shape and mold these children. What kind of father would I be? Right? If I was like, hey kids, you know what? We're going to just watch Eddie Murphy movies all weekend. And then we'll see what kind of kids would be on Monday when i got to go to work. Thanks, wife. Bye. Everyone would say that's absurd. So then why do we leave our wives, who are supposed to be shaving and molding, to the world? Yeah, you know, I have no idea how to tell you that problem, honey, but I'm sure the mommy bloggers do. Now, I remember this. <laughs> I have a long story, troubled past with this, but we've had all of our kids at home, all six of them. And I remember early on, like, it's amazing how Christians talk about male headship until there's either a wedding or a baby coming. And then all of a sudden it's like, dude, sit down, shut up, you have nothing to say. And I remember voicing this concern in my life, like, listen, it's just a hen house in there. It's like, all you ladies, it's like, nobody asked me what I think about anything. And, and to a certain extent, everyone, right, a lot of us are like, well, why would you be having a person? Well, it's my wife. <laughs> I'm responsible for what happens. And so, you know, I go on this terror one time when we were pregnant. I am not going back to the tent house to told what to do by all these women. I'm not doing it. This is what my wife said. You don't know anything about what they're talking about. It's true. <laughs> Why this and not that? Why a tub and not a tub? Why that and this and this? Why do you use this and not that? I had no idea. You know what I mean? I wouldn't know. So then, when I go into the tent house and they start talking about it, but, well, I read these articles written by the New England Journal of Medicine, yada, yada, yada. I don't even remember it. It wasn't like information I needed to write. But I remember getting into this. Why? Because I'm responsible for what happened to me. Is it possible one of them would give her terrible advice? And later on, when I said it was none of my business because I'm not a woman, how would that have gone over in heaven with Jesus? 
what she wears, what makeup she buys, what she, how she spends her time, is that none of my business? Is what I do with my time none of her business? We have a very hard time with what I'm talking about. But the Lord comes, takes all those people, plants them in his church, and he, through, by providence, through his power, through his authority, is shaping and molding the church into something more beautiful than it is. Does it resist? At times, yes. Does it understand? Not always, but that's what he's doing. And then he says, okay, husband, do this. Now, what happens if you do without gentleness? What happens if you do without self-control? What happens if you do without kindness? What happens if you do without love? So you have this responsibility now. And God says, okay, here she is, right? Look at how gorgeous she is on her, her wedding day. Now go make something of her. And you're like, well, okay, um, I'm going to call her on the phone and tell her what to make. That's my job, right? So I tell her what to do. Hey, honey, you really need to mow the lawn. And, and all of this helps us understand one of the most controversial verses about the Bible, in the Bible about marriage. Because what I'm talking about, this mutual shaping, this mutual imitation, this, this, these forces that work in a home that are shaping these people into Christ-like characters, what is happening here is efficacious love. In Ephesians, that's what Jesus is explaining. My love doesn't leave you as it is. A husband's love for his wife doesn't leave her as she is. The, that love should not leave him as he was. Everyone should be changing. Into what? Christ-like characters. But this is what Peter means in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Oh, there it is again. What is this? First time the health, now I'm weak. And then he goes on to remind the readers, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, why do you think Christian men have to be, have to be reminded of that? What do you think? They too are co-heirs with you. Is it possible because you consider them to be the help? Right? Well, well, they're not co-heirs, they're servants. They're slaves in the house of God. They're not like with us, they're co-heirs, sons. Right? No, 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 they are the weaker vessels. But they are also co-heirs with you of the kingdom of heaven. This is why husbands need to understand, to understand what this means. Right? The little woman can't open a jar. Is that what I'm talking about? Why is it that some of the wives that they can't, can't open the jar? Women can't clean it. Women are vessels of God's glory, just as men are. 2 Corinthians 4 7. But we have this treasure in church of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are all vessels. There are some vessels that are stronger than others. Right? A hammer and a teapot are they, they're both vessels, right? They had a five-gallon plastic bucket. Is it the same thing as a tea cup? Are they the same amount of strength? Well, no. But do you ever go into Home Depot and be like, how dare you people make all these weaker vessels? Why don't you make nothing but strong vessels? There are a difference between vessels. God said, right, I'm going to make these vessels, and they're all going to have a glory, and some of them will be stronger than others. Why, are, why is that so offensive to Second Corinthians thirteen four. 
For he, Jesus, is crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. First Corinthians one twenty-five. And the weakness of God is stronger than that. Christ's weakness is the only thing strong enough to soften men's hearts of stone. And so he made half of us weak. Because weakness is what humanity needs. <laughs> to file down the stony heart. To the, the hard-headedness. The hard-headedness needs to be softened. The hard hearts need to be softened. And so what does he do? Right? The only thing we need in this world is not just five gallons, five free buckets. We need a teacup. The weaker vessel is weaker, like gold is softer by metal. Think about that for a moment. Gold is soft. Now, we have some jewelry among us. What's acting? Does anyone ever come in there and be like, oh, I don't want gold, it's too soft? But is it good for us? Good for nothing, right? Yeah, come on, test it on it. Gold is the softer metal, and what do we use it for? All the really beautiful ones. It's malleable. It's able to be shaped and molded and altered into a joint object of beauty. The church is the weaker vessel in Christ's stand, being justified, being sanctified, being sanded, being softened, reshaped into a crown of glory for himself. What this means to husbands is that you are a shaper, a maker, a beautifier. Your Isha is hot, she is yours, like what warms gold from the furnace. That's what I'm talking about. It's not my gold, it's your gold. And what is it? It's hot and it's yours. So make something of it. It can't, right? Would you grow a garden and say, okay, garden, take care of yourself? <laughs> right? You, you walk over to the ground and you look down and you're like, okay, I know there's gold under the earth here. So what I'm going to do is be like, hey, gold, dig yourself out of the ground, heat yourself up, shape yourself into something. Let's go. Everyone sees that. It's absurd. And Christ tells that his example is that he takes something soft and makes something out of it. And through doing it, right? And when husbands engage in this process, what happens to them? Well, they become gentle and self-controlled. They become wise and upright. And, and you see, by handling this gold, they become craftsmen. They become like Christ. Crowns are a glorious burden. But like a hundred pound weight is a thing. Right? What happens if I go home and, and I lift hundred pound weights every day? What would happen to you? Your wife is like that. She is a burden. A burden. But the kind of burden that makes you stronger for lifting, for carrying. Now, here's what I want you to do. And this is where some of you have heard this before. This is the point. This is where we're going to end this beautiful sermon on marriage. Gentlemen. Go home and sit down, and I want you to write out two lists. Two lists. That's all it takes. It's your homework. The first is a list of pros. All the blessings and glories and undeserved graces that your wife is to you. A list of her virtues and her qualities, her godlike attributes. The second list I want you to write is a list of cons, the areas in her life that need a lot of work. Or anyone. <laughs> the burdensome vices, the difficulties. The shrewishness, the lack of virtue, um, the lack of modesty, the areas that need improvement in her life. Now, here's what I want you to do. Is I want you to look at the two lists. And if the list of pros isn't at the very least 
five times longer than the cause, the problem isn't her. It's you. If you sit down and the list of cons is longer than the list of pros, you personally have a serious problem. Whose responsibility? The way you view her, the way you lead her, the way you are not shaping her. You are not approaching your marriage like a Christian man. Your glory is not your job or reputation or your fantasy football team. It's not your stature or knowledge or degrees or accolades that make you a worthy man. Your wife is all that it takes to make you a worthy man or not. Do you want to be like Christ? Do you want to have not just a reputation, but actual godliness? Do you want to manifest the glory of Christ throughout your life? Then your glory and honor and crown must be your wife. But remember, before the crown comes to cross, before, right, you have to pursue Lady Wisdom. You have to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. You have to put self to death in order to shape and mold the crown of glory. Now, ladies, this is, this is the last word. What is shaping? Right? That, those clothes you're wearing, the makeup you're choosing, the books you're reading, the movies you're watching, what's shaping you? Is your husband shaping you, or is culture shaping you? Is the world shaping you, or is your husband with the Word of God shaping you? And if he's not, I'm going to testify to this thing. You have a serious problem, and it's not you. It's him. So, whether you're the guy with the list of cons that isn't the pros, you're the, the wife, right, who's not being shaped and molded by her husband and can't say anything to him about it, Either way, we have the same problem. My counseling schedule is mine. If you have either of these problems, please come and see me. I, I can't wait to meet with you and talk to you about it. But as you go from here, this, this, if you want to engage in the story of redemption, you want to engage in the eschatology of human time, then look to your spouse to shape and mold. Rejoice. Sing and praise him. Praise her in the gates. Talk about how much you respect him. Honor one another and love one another. And, and learn from the all the conflict that you're having. Because right, things get heated up and then you pound on them. That's how you make a crown. And any of us who are married know that that's kind of what goes on in our home sometimes. And, 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 and that's fine. As long as what's happening is a crown for a king. If it's not resulting in a crown for a king, you have a big problem. But this is the point of marriage. Be thankful for your spouse. Look to them to shape and mold you. And, and, and through this process, realize that you are becoming increasingly like your Lord. Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to us and providing our spouses to us and giving us this one person who completely encourages us. Lord God, may we go from here realizing the glory of that, the goodness of it. Let us rejoice in our spouse. Let us be shaped and molded by them. Let us look to one another, Lord, for mutual support, love, one another, and one another. I pray, God, that you.